Turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 20. Luke chapter 20, which is very strongly linked. That's why I read into it last week, even though we didn't get that far in the message. Very strongly linked to the passage before it, um, as that is the precipitating events of what we are going to, the conversations we're going to have uh, here in chapter 20. And so that's why we try, I hate to disassociate them too much. But I probably would have rather had the chapter break somewhere else in chapter 19 so it would include those. But here we go. Chapter 20, Luke chapter 20, reading verses 1 through 19. I'll be reading out the New King James Version, as is my custom. God's Word says, Now it happened on one of those days, as he taught the people in the temple and preached the gospel, that the chief priests and the scribes, together with the elders, confronted him and spoke to him, saying, Tell us, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who is he who gave you this authority? But he answered and said to them, I also ask you one thing, and answer me. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? And they reasoned among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from men, all the people will stone us, for they are persuaded that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it was from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Then he began to tell the people this parable. A certain man planted a vineyard, leased it to vine dressers, and went into a far country for a long time. Now at vintage time, he sent a servant to the vine dressers that they might give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the vine dressers beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent another servant, and they beat him also, treated him shamefully, and sent him away empty-handed. And again, he sent a third, and they wounded him also and cast him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I shall send my beloved son. Probably they will respect him when they see him. But when the vine dressers saw him, they reasoned among themselves, saying, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, that the inheritance may be ours. So they cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. And when they heard it, they said, Certainly not! They looked at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Whoever falls on that stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. And the chief priests and the scribes that very hour sought to lay hands on him, but they feared the people, for they knew he had spoken this parable against them. Well, we want to back up a little bit this morning. I want to take a running start at Luke chapter 20 by looking at Luke chapter 19 again. I mentioned very briefly, and I was surprised at how briefly I mentioned it last week, uh, referring to these three, L, these three events that Luke records for us in chapter 19, verses 28 through 48, where he describes the triumphal entry, uh, Jesus' prophetic utterance regarding Jerusalem, and the cleansing of the temple. And I know I stated it, but I stated it only once and very briefly. I don't know that many of you caught it of why these are tied together. Uh, this is a presentation of Christ in a very powerful, threefold manner that you will hear us talk about in many occasions, and that is Christ coming as both prophet, priest, and king. Now, it's not in that order in this passage, but it, all three are presented here in these three events of Christ's arrival in Jerusalem. I do not call it the triumphal entry because that is yet to come. And this is one of the poorest entitled events in Scripture, the triumphal entry. This was not his triumphal entry. If that were the case, every knee would bow, every tongue would confess that Jesus is Lord. That is Christ's triumphal entry. It is still to come. It is the one we are looking forward to. So, this entry, 
the entry of his passion. We look at him being presented, first of all, as king. Even where the crowds are shouting out, Blessed the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Not all receive him as that. Some say, tell your disciples to be quiet. They shouldn't be calling you king. And yet he is the king of kings and lord of lords. King not only of humanity, but king of all creation. And thus he says that of these, my disciples, if humans choose to be silent, the very rocks, the very lowest part, the most inanimate part of creation will have to cry out, King of kings and Lord of lords. And so Jesus Christ comes to Jerusalem as king. He also comes as prophet as he speaks forth not only the, the uh, future of Jerusalem, which is described in verses 43 and 44, But as we find out in verse 1 of chapter 20, he is preaching the gospel. And this is the twofold ministry of a prophet. In the Old Testament period of time, the prophet was there to foretell, which is to tell what God is going to be doing in the future. But he is also there to foretell. That is to tell the simple message, what do you need to do today? What does God require of us today? And Jesus Christ preached this message. Not only foretelling Jerusalem, you're going to be surrounded. You're going to, there's going to be an embankment built against you. You're going to be torn down to the ground. Uh, there's not going to be one stone upon another, all because you rejected me as your king today. You didn't grasp who it was that visited you this day. So this is your uh, judgment that's to come. And he's acting as a prophet of the Old Testament nature, but then he backs that up with preaching just as the Old Testament prophets did preach repentance. You must repent. That's the solution. You must repent and recognize who I am and trust in me. So he came as king. He came as prophet. And then finally we find his priestly role. He enters into the temple proper and he begins taking up the role of cleansing it in preparation really for his teaching ministry. He's not about to come into the temple and minister his instruction. Most all that we're going to see from here on out is all going to happen by and large in the temple, on the temple mount. And so he's coming in there and we're going to find him cleansing the temple and he calls it my father's house. How dare you come in here and soil my father's house in this way. You've made and, And again, the idea of my house is a house of prayer. You've made a den of thieves. And he has taken the task All they're there. Um, But notice who he's conflicting with. Now remember, the first group he had conflict with were in, uh, let's see, the Pharisees, which is in verse 39. The Pharisees said, rebuke your disciples. Uh, Not only were these somewhat spiritual leaders, but they put themselves on as the leaders, the pseudo-government of Israel. Then we find him being countered in the temple by the uh, chief priests, the scribes, leaders of the people sought to destroy him. And so he's in there cleansing the temple. You would think that they would be applauding this or at least saying nothing, but rather they are appalled by this, which tells you what they were engaged in. And here comes the high priest, Jesus Christ, and cleanses the temple that it might be a place of righteousness, a place of prayer, a place of of. Uh, forgiveness and and of holiness, which is the whole description. We have the Holy of Holies and the Holy Place and, and even the whole Mount, the Holy Mount. And they have desecrated it. And the indication there is that the chief priests were some of the very people and the scribes were some of the very people that were gaining financially from what was going on here in the temple. And so he comes in as priest in his priestly role cleanses the temple we find opposition followed by opposition followed by opposition even among the people themselves so we come to chapter 20 and jesus christ has exercised his authority as king as prophet and as priest and now they want to know who do you think you are What makes you think that you can accept these roles that you've done in very rapid-fire events on the way into and his arrival in Jerusalem and specifically the Temple Mount? 
And so we pick up and we find that he is going to be going through each day, coming back into Jerusalem, teaching the people in the temple. And what is he preaching? He's preaching the gospel, the good news of salvation. That's what the gospel means, good news. He's telling them good news that salvation has come to them. And all along the way, they are, he is being confronted and regularly confronting uh, not necessarily the message, but the authority behind the message. Because if you recall, all the way back to his first message, what did we find out about Jesus that, that enthralled the people? It wasn't just the content of what he preached, but it says this man preaches with authority. He doesn't quote rabbi so-and-so and depend upon this tradition or of that uh, quotation or or out of this book and uh, it's kind of funny how pastors do a lot of that today even where we find ourselves quoting all of the some of the men throughout church history uh, rather than spending a little more time in god's word um, we come to it and we and we find him with authority speaking and we see no reason to think of it any differently when we get up to come chapter 20 and that's going to be the issue at hand By what authority are you claiming this claim and teaching what you are teaching and the manner in which you are teaching? As we get into that this morning, let's go, Lord, in prayer. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. We thank you for the opportunity to look in your word this morning. We pray you might direct our thoughts. Might, uh, first of all, uh, keep them true to your word. Keep them from being distracted. They might be well-focused upon your word, upon your truth, upon your Son, Jesus Christ. Not that this truth is somehow not a part of the rest of what we think and how we live, but yet intimately a part. It needs to be applied there, certainly. Lord, our prayer is might help us to give it our full attention this morning. We also pray you might, as we always pray, guard this time. And yet even as we do so, we know that it is easy to allow the thoughts of men, the philosophies of men, and even the air of a man to enter. And so we pray that you might guard this time by your Spirit. You might anoint it, that it might be uh, your truth today, that we might receive it as such, bring it into our hearts, into our minds, and our very lives, and let it compel us to live as you would want us to. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. Well, the leaders come to Jesus with a direct query, asking him point blank what has been on there minds and hearts that they are sure will bring this all to a very quick climax. They anticipate that they are going to be able to take the information of this question and denounce Jesus Christ, either as a lunatic or as a liar. Tell us by what authority are you doing these things? Or who is he who gave you this authority? A twofold question. The first belies the fact that they understood that Jesus Christ was claiming personal authority. That he did not need any further testimony other than the power of the miracles that he performed, the truth of the teaching that he gave, um, that in who he was was sufficient to, to uh, warrant him having the authority to claim to be king, to prophesy, and to cleanse the temple. The first question really sounds as though they understood this. By what authority are you doing these things? The expectation of an answer was that that authority would be something he would claim internally. The second question begs a different origin. Are you getting this authority from someone else? Who gave you this? By what authority are you standing in this ministry? And frankly, this is still a question that's being asked of those who are ministering to this day. Is a question that would have been asked of uh, John the Baptist, as we're going to see here a little bit. It's a question that's going to be asked of every prophet. By what authority are you doing this? 
And so God would have uh, granted them opportunities to demonstrate the origin and the authority of their message. He did this by having them uh, perhaps perform miracles. He did this perhaps by having them prophesy near events that when they came true, Israel was supposed to wake up and say, whoa, we have a real prophet in our midst. There seemed to be no difficulty in Israel of recognizing a prophet as a prophet. They acknowledged that these events happened and that signified someone having divine authority. Jesus Christ is full of that so far in his ministerial life. Not even considering his birth and the narrative around and the events around that, which were well known. Uh, remember that they involved men of the priestly order. We had John the Baptist ministry that is pointed to him. Um, this was stuff that, that Herod had all the boys slain in Bethlehem. That was not long forgotten. All the events around Bethlehem are not forgotten 30 years later. Certainly not with the Magi arriving and the celestial events and the shepherds. It is likely that some of those or at least the the family of those are still around. And Bethlehem is not so far from Jerusalem, just a little way south. And so we find that, that uh, the question here is, who gave you this authority? That is, if it's outside of what you are, who is he who gave you this authority? Although Christ has made that very clear that he comes in the name of the Father. And we have the witnesses among some of the disciples who heard the Father's voice at His baptism, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. We have it at the baptism. We have it at the Mount of Transfiguration. So we have had this witness. And so Christ doesn't come with just a single authority, but with all authority. And He could answer both of these questions very directly, but He chooses not to because of the timing and because of really the heart of the people asking. This is very different than, say, John the Baptist's disciples who came to him and said, are you the one we're supposed to be looking for? Is there someone else? And he gives them an answer that, again, might seem to us to be indirect, but he says, you go tell John what you've seen and what you've heard. And that's all the evidence you need. And here it is certain that the chief priests and scribes and the elders of the people have all the evidence they need to answer this question. It was not ignorance for which they were wanting to ask this, but it was as an opportunity to try to turn people against Christ. And so Christ, knowing their heart, comes to them and says, answer said, oh, you answer my question, I'll answer yours. He comes to them a little enigmatically and says, okay, here's a little uh, puzzle for you. I can answer your question as soon as you answer this one. John the Baptist. What was his authority? A simple, direct question. John the Baptist, well known to them. By what authority did John the Baptist minister? Was it from God or from men? Was it from heaven or men? And now we find their heart. And this is, not, this is the first time that we're going to have them reason together. It's not going to be the last time. It's going to come up again throughout this chapter that they've reasoned together because to, uh, they've learned not to just blurt out things because Jesus Christ is able to uh, catch them very easily. So they reason together that, uh, all right, he's given us two options. If we say that it came from heaven, why didn't you follow John? Why didn't you believe him? He said, I am the son of the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. That was John the Baptist's testimony of Jesus Christ. If you say, if you're willing to recognize that his message was from heaven, well, there's your answer to your question of who I am. But they realize that if they say that John the Baptist's message was from heaven, they didn't really obey John. They didn't follow John. They didn't receive his message. In fact, they opposed him, just as they opposed Jesus Christ. What they really wanted to say, what was really in their heart was, you have it by men, or really by yourself, by your humanity. 
But if they said that from men, which is what they really wanted to say is the evidence here, all the people will stone us. For how can by man's hand the blind receive their sight? How can it by man's power the dead be raised? How can it by man's wisdom the scriptures be spoken? They are afraid of the crowd. And notice that they don't acknowledge that John was a prophet. They said the people are persuaded that John was a prophet. You see, the leadership of Israel had already rejected John. And therefore, we can anticipate their rejection of Jesus Christ. You reject the prophet of God, you are rejecting God Himself. You reject the preacher and the message of truth, you're rejecting the one who sent it, that message. So, they come up with a third alternative. The great answer that was a lie. Their statement was, we don't know. We don't know. We know that's not what's in their heart. We know that's not what they believe. But looking at the surroundings and the circumstances, they decide to come up with the statement, I don't know. And they claim ignorance. Think about who we're talking about. These are the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders who are supposed to be leading all of Israel. And they come with a very simple question. John the Baptist, was he a man of God or not? And their statement is, don't know. They're willing to jeopardize that place that they have. And for all the people standing there, they have to say, our leaders don't know who John the Baptist was? That he came from God or not? They're incapable of grasping that? And by the way, there's a lot of people in my circles um, that are right in there. We ask them to evaluate this man's doctrine, evaluate this church teaching, and they go, well, I don't really know. I just know it's your responsibility to know. If we cannot discern what is of God and what is of men, how can you possibly claim to lead your people in righteousness and in truth? It is our responsibility for the spiritual leadership of this church and every church to be able to distinguish what is of God and what is of men. They were relinquishing their role as a spiritual leadership of Israel and they're basically saying, we're not going to take a position because um, it's going to cause a scene here. If I take a position, people are going to get mad at us and maybe even kill us. And so we're just going to say, I don't know. People get a little upset with me because I tend to be very black and white in my positions. Because I go to Scripture and I see that everyone talks about what about the gray areas? And I say, well, show them to me. I don't get them. I don't get where those gray areas are. I, I don't find very many in Scripture. There's righteousness and holiness and then there's behaving like your father the devil. We talk about all these gray areas. The Bible says, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father isn't in him. That's pretty cut and dry, isn't it? Isn't that pretty cut and dry? Can't we just say, if the world loves it, and I love it, there's probably something wrong. Oh, but pastor, that's an amoral issue. There is no amoral issue. There are no amoral issues. God, has, God has not relinquished anything and said that's amoral. It's neither right nor wrong. So here the leadership of Israel that was supposed to guide them into what is of God and what is of men so they could distinguish it and with discernment could then please God. Remember where we're standing. We're standing on the Temple Mount. And the leadership of Israel was afraid to take a stand and say, well, this is of God or this is of men. And let me reiterate why. Because fundamentally, they didn't believe the truth. 
If we really believe that this is the authoritative Word of God, then we will preach it without compromise and we will preach it without excuse. We will not apologize for preaching it as absolute. And when people come to me and say, oh, but I've had this experience, you know what I do? I say, I don't trust your experience. I trust this more. I don't trust my own experiences. I don't trust my own emotions, if we have those. If you weren't here last Sunday night, you don't know what I mean. I don't trust those inclinations of my heart. Rather, we trust the truth that God has declared. And it's that that guides us. These men could not lead Israel in this fundamental question of who is Jesus and what is his authority. Who is John the Baptist? By what authority? They couldn't make that dis- that discernment for the people because they themselves rejected the message. And so Christ says, because you've rejected that and you have basically decued yourself from being the leadership of Israel, then I don't have to answer you. If you can't tell whether John the Baptist was of God or of men, then you can do nothing to lead Israel. If you can't distinguish between a truth and a lie, if you can't distinguish between what is godly and what is ungodly, then you're disqualified from even being the people to ask me a question. And so I'm not going to answer your question. I will not tell you by what authority I do these things. You rejected my messenger. It is certain you are about to reject me and already have in your hearts. And now we come up to a parable to illustrate the fact. But I want you to notice who he turned to. He's not telling the parable to the chief priests. And by the way, that, that plurality of, you say there's only supposed to be one chief priest, not in this time. There were two chief priests. You find that in the, in later on during the trial. Um, one was the true chief priest, and the other one is the Roman chief priest. And so there's two chief priests in Israel during this time, and that's why Luke uses the plural there uh, throughout this. So the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders are involved here, and Christ doesn't speak to them. He's done with them. He has given this, this finality. You who claim to be the leaders of Israel can't lead people because you don't know a prophet when you hear one. So who are you to question anyone if you can't discern whether or not John the Baptist is speaking the truth or not? Now, he's going to turn from them to all the people that the chief priests, scribes, and elders are afraid of. Remember? They're afraid of this. There's a crowd. There's a multitude there. And he's going to turn and he's going to start talking to them. This parable. We've read it already this morning. We recognize that the certain man who planted the vineyard is God, the Creator, who made all that is. That he made the earth, the plants, the sea, the fish, the birds of the air, the animals, created man himself. Leased it to a vine dressers, and those vine dressers, by the way, are the sons of Adam. We are the vine dressers of God's creation. We are the stewards, we are not the owners. We are the caretakers, and nothing more. And so God created. Then God placed the authority of that created order into the hands of servants, of man, and that describing it as leased it to them. That is with an expectation that while you are here to enjoy it and you get to participate in it, you have some work to do here, that there is an expectation that there will be a benefit for the Creator. Some portion of what occurs in his garden, in his vineyard, is expected to go to him. And so he goes off into a far country for a long time. 
And others have written extensively about this whole idea that an unkept garden does not mean that it is a garden unowned or uncared about, only that it is poorly managed. And when you hear people talk about how can God allow this and how can God allow that, um, the question is, how can we? We were given a good earth. We brought the evil here into God's garden. We did. And the marvel is that God allows us to continue to manage it, to lease it, and continues to harvest out of it when he, we really deserve only destruction. Specifically, the vine dressers here is not only all of humanity, but specifically Israel. To whom God gave a unique and privileged position in His created order. And He expected a harvest from them. And it says when vintage time came, He, he sent a servant to the vine dressers that they might give Him some of the fruit of the vineyard for the first fruits and those fruits belong to the Creator. He has a right to demand them of us. For we are His. This servant, of course, refers certainly to the prophets that God has sent. Send servant after servant after servant three times. And this is just a picture of what God has done throughout the time of Israel's history and of the people of God where He sends these servants down to proclaim the word of the Lord, to call people back, to become first fruits to God, fruits of righteousness and holiness. And they come and they preach repentance and they preach that, that judgment is coming and, and it's time to come back to God and to grant God what His due is. And what God is due is all of our honor, all that we can glory in, everything that we can direct out of who we are and what we do, God is worthy of it. And thus the song that is rightly sung in heaven and should be sung on earth is worthy. We come to Revelation, we find that song. Holy, holy, holy. And referring to God as the creator and the sustainer of all of life. Let's read it. It's just I reference these things sometimes and we need to read them. Revelation chapter 4, verse 11. You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. And thus, all that Israel was called to do was that you will give glory and honor to me. Even as I create all of mankind to give glory and honor to me, um, now, in history, I have chosen you, selected you, pulled you out, and given you a special privileged position, and said, now, as the vine dressers here, give glory and honor to me. And I'll send my prophets to you and turn your, try to turn your hearts so that you will do what you are designed to do, what you are called to do, what is your job and expectation to do. It is your duty to do. But they rejected prophet after prophet. And we are reminded of Jesus' teaching of, as He entered and saw Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets. How often Christ has wanted to draw them in to Himself. Put them under His wing. They rebelled. And rejected him again and again. And so John the Baptist is in this list of prophet after prophet after prophet that is sent to direct the vine dressers to their duty, to their responsibility, to their calling. Finally, the creator, the owner, says, I'll send my son. It says, my beloved son, and that idea of that this unique individual, this one-of-a-kind one, 
the single heir. And we know that because the vine dressers know it too. There's only one. And so if they kill this heir, there is no other heir. This is a one and only son of the owner. If we kill him, everything's ours because the owner doesn't have anyone else. They think by destroying him that the vineyard becomes theirs. This is Satan's lie that he perpetrates even to this day. The men think that if they reject Jesus, the world is theirs. And it's not. You can deny that there's a creator and say this all came about by chance. You can deny that Jesus Christ was God, reject Him and crucify Him all over again in your heart, and in your mind, in your society. But the fact is, that will not make creation yours. It is still owned by the Creator. Again, Christ is prophesying that these ones will kill Him. Whether they understood that or not, they knew that they were responsible for killing the prophets of old, their people. The question comes in in verse 15 that is going to draw their ire, their, their rage. What will the owner of the vineyard do? Now that you've mistreated his servants... And now that you have slain His one and only beloved Son, what do you think He's going to do? Do you think He's just going to throw up His hands and just say, I guess I lost that one? No. He's the owner. It's His vineyard. What do you think He's going to do? And yet, For Israel, the leadership really thought that they could reject all the prophets of God. They could ignore the messages of God. They could even hate the Son of God and thought that somehow God still had to bless them. We find this in the minor prophets where the prophets go up to, and even the major prophets, prophets go up to Israel and say, you have to repent. They say, oh no, God can't do anything bad to us because we're His people. It doesn't matter how we live. Sound familiar? That's what they said to the prophets. We're special. We're so special to God that we can do however we please and we can sin however we like. We can serve however many gods we want and God can't harm us. He would never kick us out of our country. He would never cause these judgments to come upon us because we're His special people. We can live how we please. He won't do anything to us because He's love. And that was essentially... They're thinking behind rejecting the prophets. And it's shared here. This group of leadership were having the same ideas. Is that we are in this privileged position because we are the Israel of Israel. And nothing really bad. I mean, you would think after rehearsing your history, you spent 70 years in captivity. Nope, they still have that same mentality. We're too special for God to judge. We can abuse His servants. We can ignore His one and only Son, even murder Him, and expect to continue to manage and harvest God's field. And i got to tell you, I see that everywhere among people, quote-unquote Christian, who are sure that they're special to God because they prayed a sinner's prayer, they can now live however they like and God can't possibly judge you for it. And then you're going to go to heaven and get pat on the back and saying, well done, good and faithful servant. We're just sure that's how it's going to go. Even though I live like the world, I talk like the world, I think like the world, my value system is based upon the world's, but somehow, we figure because I have that sinner's prayer in my background, I'm okay, and God can't do anything bad to me. And if anything bad does actually happen to me, I don't need to repent. I need to point the finger at God and says, how dare you? This is the mindset 
of the leaders of Israel. It's a mindset that's being shared today and it's on the very verge of judgment. Within that generation, God says, Jerusalem's gone. And you people will be dead. Because you rejected me. What do you think the Creator of all the earth is going to do? What will the owner of the vineyard do to the people who mistreat his messengers, mistreat his son, reject his son, and discontinue to live as if they own the vineyard? What do you think God's going to do to us? You think he's wringing his hands up there and saying, Oh my, what am I going to do? What should... Oh, oh. I have no, nothing left. The arsenal of God is not empty. It is overflowing. And He is prepared to let it rip. What do you think He's going to do? When people walk around and call themselves Christian and do and act and talk and look and, and hear like the world. What do you think He's going to do? You're not, we're not, we, when we choose not to live uh, a life according to Jesus Christ, when we choose to follow the world, we choose that idolatrous kind of lifestyle, and then we go to God and say, oh, but you know, we're, you're vine dressers. We don't have to follow your message. We don't have to give you glory, honor, and praise because we kind of like that ourselves. We enjoy giving it to ourselves. I'm special to God. Here's what he's going to do. And this answer, not the question, but the answer is what makes them angry. What do you think the owner of the vineyard is going to do to them? He will come and destroy the vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. What is Christ intimating? And what is it that the chief priests, scribes, and elders understood Him to be intimating? Is that God is going to rip the promises right out of Israel He's going to destroy Israel even. And He's going to grant those very same things to another group of people. And that group of people, by the way, is the church. And i got a little thing to talk about that. Don't get too secure because you're the one that got ripped to instead of ripped from. And so He says, I'm going to, he said, give the vineyard to others. And they heard it. They said, certainly not. They understood the impact of what he was saying. And that is that this message of the gospel that I'm preaching right here in the temple to all Jewish people, and because you're rejecting it, guess what? A few years from now, it's not even hardly going to be heard here. But it's going to be elsewhere. It's going to be in Greek cities. It's going to be in Roman cities. It's going to be in Asian cities. It's going to be in African cities. It's going to be somewhere else going to be almost vacant here because you rejected it the stone I'm, I'm sorry their response was certainly not they were sure no 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 judgment will never come to us and i want to take this attitude and i want to bring it into the church age paul gives a very strong admonition or warning in scripture about those who want to glory in the fact that they're in the church instead of israel and we'll never be like that here's what he says you know what God cut them off and grafted you in. But lest you get too cocky about that, lest you get too excited about that, let me remind you, if He cut them off, the natural branch, He can cut off the grafted in branch too. That's a very serious warning Paul gives. So don't think that what Christ is saying here about Israel can't be applied to the church. If we reject Christ, if we reject the message, if we want to live like the world or live like we want, if we won't give God the glory, honor, and praise due His name, it is just as certain that He'll cut us off. In fact, that's essentially what He does when He comes. He puts an end to the church age. And that end is not a glorious, victorious one. Remember? When the Son of Man comes, will He really find faith on the earth? That question forces us to think that the church is going to be in about the same condition when Christ comes 
as Israel was when he came the first time. Listen to that very carefully. The church is going to be largely in the same condition when Christ's second coming arrives, when the rapture occurs. The church will be in that condition, not even looking for it anymore because some bozo the clown on the radio thinks he knows the exact date. And I've been, I got to tell you, this is extra. No, I'll give it to you tonight. Um, got to totally switch gears now. I'm, I'm going to talk about that tonight, by the way. This is an extra message because I'm not going to start a series. I'm going to talk about that. Now we're going to throw out the baby with the bathwater. Now we're not even, we're, we don't even want to talk about the rapture. I try to engage you and they say, oh, that's all crazy talk. And that's the feeling now. It's social ridicule if you want to actually talk about the Lord's coming in a serious vein because of one guy. The church has come to this place, much like Israel was, that we really aren't looking for Christ. We aren't looking for a Messiah. We're not looking for someone to deliver us. We're not looking for that. We're not interested in holiness and righteousness and truth. We are denying the true prophets, the ones who are preaching things that require us to repent and change our life. We don't want to hear that message. We want a tool. We want someone to tell us about how God wants you to be rich. We want to hear a message about how God wants you to be healthy. We want to hear a message that how God wants us to have control over the whole nation, that we need to be the moral majority. <clears throat> Never existed. You know why? Because men are sinners. And the majority of men have always been senators. Sinners. I said senators. <laughs> The majority of men have always been sinners. How much of a majority of men have been sinners? All but one. There's never been a moral majority in any nation on earth. It's a lie we tell ourselves because we believe in ourselves, in our voting block, in our party politics, instead of in our hope is in Jesus Christ. You can vote Obama out. Go ahead. You think that's going to bring the kingdom? It's not. In fact, I'm starting to think the other way. You see, the church has become in many ways in the same condition of Israel. They weren't ready to receive their Messiah. And I think the message from Luke is the same will be for the church. That when God says the church age is done, I'm finished, because it's not glorifying my name anymore. They're going to ridicule my messengers. They're really hating my son. They're going to destroy him. And they really are. We have ripped Jesus to shreds. He's barely more than just a very beneficial, nice guy in most churches today. Certainly not God, the Creator, who, has, who is the King of kings and Lord of lords, who is our high priest and our prophet that must be obeyed and followed. He is someone that was just a good guy with good teaching that when it makes me feel good, I'll listen to it. But not someone who is Lord of my life. When the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? What's going to happen? The stone which the builders reject has become the chief cornerstone. That's what's written. And he says, this stone is not meant to draw people, but to destroy them. When that stone takes its place, it will be crushing people. If it falls on you, you're powder. If you fall on it, you're broken. And I want you to see that the chief priest describes that very hour understood exactly what he meant. They sought to lay hands on him, but they feared the people, for they knew he had spoken this parable against them. Christ wasn't speaking to them. They were overhearing it. They knew Jesus is talking about us, and we don't like it. So we're going to destroy him and seek every opportunity to move against him. It says in verse 20, they watched him. And they're going to send spies. They're going to try to do every underhanded thing they can 
And I love this spies thing. It's going to be in more next weeks. But uh, the spies went and pretended to be righteous. But their intent was clearly to undermine the work and teaching of Jesus Christ. And brethren, every book of the New Testament, save one, warns us about men coming into churches pretending to be righteous. But the intent of their heart is to undermine the work of God and destroy His church. And this Christ declared and will declare in our study in Luke here in the next chapter, really, um, will be the evidence of the end. Men will heap up for themselves teachers who will tell them what their itching ears want to hear. They'll be leading gullible people away captive. And no one will really grant in their heart the place of authority that God demands. See, that requires us to humble ourselves. And that's not in the spirit of our nation, is it? We had a look. We were saying something right before Sunday school started. The few, the proud. Well, we we're actually talking about the few, the faithful, um, here this morning. But someone said, the few, the proud, the marines. I said, well, the few aren't proud. The majority are. And it's what keeps them from heaven. Because they won't surrender to Jesus Christ. Until we are willing to be the few, the humble, we can be none of His. And yet we find this very message not just ignored, but even ridiculed in churches today. And it won't be long where Christ says, enough. It's time to put an end to this group called my people who do not do what I tell them to do. You say, Lord, Lord, but you do not keep my commandments. It is certain that the stone the builders rejected is going to come triumphantly and will crush to powder those who pretend to be righteous and are just spies undermining the work of God amongst us. So be warned. Be ready. But most of all, humble yourself and follow after Jesus Christ. He is your King. He is our prophet. He is our priest.